Straight Talk from Israel. You're listening to Israel News Talk Radio. Israel News Talk Radio. Straight Talk from Israel. You're listening to The Jay Shapiro Show. Hello again, this is Jay Shapiro. Thanks for listening. This is the time of the year from the beginning of the holiday of Passover, Pesach, until after Jerusalem Day, which is like a month and a half now. And this is like the, really, the holiday time in Israel. In addition to the traditional Jewish holidays, which are Passover and Shavuot, the Feast of Weeks, and Sukkot, the holiday of tabernacles, these are all biblical. But since the founding of the state, this period of time between the beginning of the holiday of Passover until after Israeli Independence Day and Jerusalem Day, it's become a modern Israeli version, I guess you could call it the High Holidays. So it includes several traditional holidays and it includes several historic holidays that have come about since the founding of the state. And one of those days is Remembrance Day. Uh, There is a day when we remember the victims of the Holocaust, and a week later, right before the um, Independence Day, we remember those who fell in the defense of the country. So we have a bit of a problem. Because for many in Israel, the annual Remembrance Day for the fallen soldiers of the Israeli army is really the holiest day of the year, particularly, of course, for families who have lost members in the service, and even families which are not necessarily religious in the religious sense, of, uh, of being Jewish, they're religious when it comes to this holy day of remembering the fallen soldiers. Religious and uh, secular, and even many from the ultra-Orthodox community have uh, provided a form of sanctity toward this day that is unique and very embracing. Re- research carried out by some organization found that two-thirds of Israelis personally know someone who died in service or through terror. The So Remembrance Day uniquely unites the entire Jewish population in sadness. And it, it is one of the unique moments when the political noise stops and there is deep silence. There is a, a, um, a sound at the early in the morning of the Remembrance Days. There is a sound given by the air raid warnings, actually, and people stand silently. I've seen people stop in the middle of shopping 
I've seen people get out of their cars, stand at attention, doing the sound of the of the uh, reminder that this is a day of remembrance. So there is no political disarray. It's really replaced by a deep silence. Because the truth of the matter is, families of the fallen have a special place in the hearts of citizens from across the political spectrum, and there is an unwritten rule placing them at the top of our social hierarchy due to the ultimate sacrifice of their loved ones. In many ways, many ways, Remembrance Day is a testament to the covenant of fate united Israelis in times of trouble. It, it is a covenant of fate. Interesting. It's not really a covenant of faith, but a covenant of faith. We're all in the same boat. Now, there are those who say that this is now in danger. The last bastion of consensus is under threat, and just debate around how concerned people are is in itself a testimony that perhaps it is being desecrated. For example, in recent weeks, various public figures have spoken out, driven by the need to protect the day from being uh, tarnished by the raging political and public battle okay, that has taken Listen, place over judicial reform. A journalist here in Israel wrote a column uh, about a month ago, and he wrote that the Israeli government should consider canceling the state events of Remembrance Day and Independence Day this year because of the controversy controversy diversity taking place over judicial reform. Now that is a terrible statement. Why? Because the religious equivalent would be to cancel Rosh Hashanah, the New Year, and Yom Kippur, the the uh, the day of repentance. He, he writes of his deep concern that every song chosen, every word of every speech will be scrutinized based on the highly charged public atmosphere. Right now, the public atmosphere is more highly charged than it's been in many, many years over the change that the present um, Knesset wants to make in the laws uh, that uh, have to do with the uh, judicial reforms. It's, it's really uh, it's tearing the country apart more than anything has in recent years. Interesting, by the way, uh, there are demonstrations all the time. Uh, even though Passover was supposed to be a time to rest from demonstrations, there was a huge demonstration in Tel Aviv. There were over 100,000 people uh, the night after uh, Saturday night, right after uh, Right in the uh, right after the first day of uh, Passover, I, of of course I ask myself, who's paying for all this?
There are indications that foreign sources, primarily European, are paying for these massive demonstrations. When people show up carrying all kinds of uh, well-prepared signs, you know that somehow there is some source of the funding for all these kinds of things. So there is fear now that Remembrance Day will become politicized. So it, to the point where even even the wave of an Israeli flag could be considered a pro, provo, provocation. But this, they're afraid this will lead to shouting and even to violence the, between the families of the fallen on different sides of the political divide. So this uh, veteran of a journalist says that events like this could be no less than a promo to a civil war. That's how bad this, some people see the situation. There is an uh, Israeli newspaper called Makor Rishon, <clears throat> in which one of the columnists called for all national politicians to re- abstain from attending any ceremonies, calling out politicians from across all the camps. He says, don't come because you awaken the people who, d- who don't agree with you. Canceling official ceremonies would reward the aggressive and shallow culture that the po- politicians are responsible for, and the toxic action atmosphere has pushed us toward a, a boiling point. So it better that the, politi- the, the ceremonies continue and take place as they do each year, the better that they not be attended by the politicians whose very presence can cause conflicts. The responsibility of politicians is to minimize controversy, and the same for the leaders of the protest movement. With there's no sign of a political breakthrough, the temptation will be too great, and the politicians will want to come out and say something. And the 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 truth of the matter is this: if you, you this is more or less says that we have very low expectations of the politicians sitting it out because they just love audience, but if they're going to show up. If you are unable to honor the sacrifice of the thousands of martyrs who fell for the country, at least spare us the cliches about your commitment to their memory and the need to be worthy of their sacrifice when you essentially appear primarily for political purposes. Now, interesting enough, it was noted in the paper the other day that Miriam Peretz is the nation's best-known mother of fallen soldiers because two of her sons were killed defending the country. She's become the unofficial voice of Israel grief and has dedicated her life to telling the story of her loss and how she turned it into a what she calls a new melody. She says upon she was given the Israeli prize seven years ago, and she said 
I come to my nation in simple words, the language of a broken heart. I speak of this land and its legacy of choosing goodness, goodness, of happiness, of devotion to life, of responsibility, of social involvement, and at my heart beats with faith in this country and this nation out of the great depth of pain comes love and hope. And there's a woman, this is the words of a woman who lost two sons. Now, many like this woman are worried that this most holy of Israeli days, Remembrance Day, the, the, the might bring a tearing apart of the bonds that keep us together. She wrote a column in the one of the local papers, Yidiot Achronot, and she addressed the people and literally begs everyone to keep Remembrance Day out of the political chaos. The fraying of this day will be too hard a blow with lasting consequences for our most basic sense of solidarity. The the interesting, several hundred families of fallen soldiers wrote to the Knesset speaker and cabinet ministers. They wrote a letter, and they described the difference between their personal grief and collective national grief that they did not choose to carry but was thrust upon them. And Remembrance Day is the one day in the year that combines together the memories of every fallen soldier and victim of terrorism and into the silver tray upon which the state was founded. They beg to keep politics out of the cemeteries and keep the cemeteries out of politics. They make clear that their call is to politician from all sides, from the government and from the opposition, not to politicize what are essentially sacred days of memory. Now, the interesting, the letter was signed by several hundred families of people who have lost members of their families, and the risk will now be that others of of the thousands of families of Israelis will start writing letters with different opinions. The... uh, the there is a demand to keep the politicians away from the state ceremonies, and it's holy, and it's holy to all the citizens of Israel. The very politics that they want to keep out of the day of national grief will become the politics of national grief, and it, it is very very sad. The very fact that grieving families feel the need to write in such dramatic terms means that we have already managed to cause serious damage to one of the foundational elements of of Israel, that we respect the fallen and the ultimate sacrifice and we have to place that above politics. And so it's very worrying. 
that the unwritten contract between Israeli societies and those that risk their lives to protect it is under attack. As I said at the beginning, when it comes to the days of remembrance, the religious, the secular, and even many of the ultra-Orthodox observe this date. And to turn it into something political would be a very, very grave mistake. So it's very important that politicians and protesters alike take at least a week or at least 24 hours during Remembrance Day and just stop their arguing and contain themselves. As I said, the very fact that there was a demonstration on Saturday night, one of the intermediate days of the holidays of Passover, was very disturbing to me. These days, the intermediate days of the holiday Passover, are time to get together with family and enjoy the holiday. The schools are closed. The nation is essentially shut shut down. It's time for family and friends to get together, religious or non-religious. It's all immaterial. The Passover uh, time is not simply a religious holiday. The period from Passover until after uh, Jerusalem Day is really a an Israeli national holiday. It's a holiday period. It's almost two months long. And it's a time when we have to forget the things that separate us and remind ourselves that we are one family. We have waited more than almost 2,000 years for the establishment of an independent Jewish state. It is only 75 years old, which is really nothing in terms of history. And it is our responsibility to strengthen it and to maintain it. So we have to take a break from the raging political arguments of the last several months. Because when this is all over, we will have to rebuild our national ethos and rededicate the covenantal bounds between us. You cannot use Remembrance Day or any of the of the national holidays for political purposes. And uh, I, it, would, it would really be a terrible thing. We have to ask and plead with our politicians to rise above themselves. Israel is a country where there's a tremendous amount of politics. I was surprised when I first came to live here. Uh, I came to live in Israel in 1969 when the country was still under the control of the uh, Labor Party and its various constituents. And they controlled everything in the country. And it was very difficult, particularly for persons like myself who came from the United States where we had been involved or were aware of politics that wasn't so grounding and so so down to the root 
that uh, people would lose jobs because they didn't belong to the right party. That kind of thing, to the best of my knowledge, did not exist in the United States, and I was shocked to find it here. There were people who had belonged to the right-wing parties who, after the founding of the state, simply could not find jobs. There were people who had uh, uh, fallen during the War of Independence who belonged to the party that was not in power, and then he didn't get restitution for the fallen ones. These terrible things were happening here, and we've grown beyond that. We've grown into a Western-oriented democratic country, and we have to rise above the politics that tore us apart at the beginning of the nation. We've grown beyond that. And this present controversy now over the judicial reforms is bringing back us back in time to, to 75 years ago, and we have to overcome that. It's really important. We cannot desecrate Remembrance Day or Israel National Independence Day by dragging it down into politics. I would like to we have, think that we have grown beyond that. I'll be back after the break. Mothers are without a doubt the most dedicated and caring beings on the planet. Moms who breastfeed take that dedication to the next level. Mothers, especially new moms trying to breastfeed, can face challenges, often experiencing pain and discomfort trying to use breast pumps. An Israeli company called Annabella has conducted extensive research to address these issues, and they say they've developed a breast pump that can simulate the movement of the baby's tongue. The pump naturally stimulates more milk, more pleasantly for mom, and at a faster pace. The product has initially been introduced in Israel. The company is working on introducing the product in the UK and the United States. Could help moms provide breast milk without pain and discomfort. For more information on the high-tech world today, visit IsraelTechTalk.com. With your INTR Tech Minute, I'm Bob Aiello. You're back again with Jay Shapiro, and again, thanks for listening. Very interesting, this time of year, between the beginning of the holiday of Passover, Pesach, until after uh, Jerusalem Day, there is a, a heightened awareness of, I guess you could best call it, Israeliness. Uh, you see more Israeli flags on cars. Uh, you see more families together, particularly during the interme- intermediate days of Passover, when the uh, kids are not in school and families go traveling. Uh, for better or for worse, uh, this year, the, uh, the Hebrew month of Nisan, on which Passover falls on the 15th day of the month, corresponds to the uh, Muslim day, the Muslim month of uh, Ramadan, uh, in which the Muslims uh, fast all day and they only eat at night, and there is a heightened awakeness of their Islamist, if that's the proper word. And in Jerusalem, this is particularly a high point because 
a large number of uh, Muslims come to the Temple Mount uh, every day of the week, much more than they generally come during the rest of the year. So there's a heightened form of Islamic uh, awareness, and uh, part of that awareness is the idea of getting rid of the Jewish state. So uh, as a person who lives in Jerusalem myself, I'm fully aware there are many more policemen in the streets, and uh, I don't uh, haven't had occasion to go to the old city recently, but I understand from the news reports and from my neighbors, there is a very heightened police presence uh, in the downtown Jerusalem and in the old city because of the, uh, the coincidence of Ramadan and uh, Passover. So it's a very, very sensitive month here, particularly in Jerusalem. And uh, last uh, week, at the beginning of uh, on the beginning of uh, Passover, there were several uh, uh, terrorist incidents in which uh, Israelis were killed. And um, uh, even, uh, incidentally, a, a terrorist uh, attacked a group in uh, Tel Aviv uh, last Saturday or Friday night and ended up killing a French tourist who had come here to visit the Holy Land. So uh, this is a heightened uh, time of tension uh, here in uh, Eretz Israel, in Israel, and in particular in Jerusalem. At any rate, um, uh, I just wanted to share some thoughts with the listeners. I don't want to frighten anybody by saying uh, tensions are high. They are, but uh, I think there are a lot of areas in the country where you don't feel them. But here in places like Jerusalem, which is a mixed population city, you feel it more. Uh, but you don't go around uh, trembling and looking over your shoulder where you sort of get used to this kind of thing. I often wonder, I mean, I knew people who lived in areas of New York, and I wondered why they lived there. They're so dangerous. Well, why go on the subway in New York, uh, which they're dangerous. When you, when you live in it, uh, you don't necessarily feel it the way you do it, seeing it from outside. There, there's an expression in Yiddish, which I'm not quite sure is totally applicable, which is, which means when a worm crawls into horseradish, he thinks there's nothing sweet in the world. You sort of get used to it. doesn't make it pleasant, but it's not as bad as it seems when looking at it from outside. Uh, having said that, uh, I want to say something about Israel as an immigrant uh, receiving country. Most of the population here in Israel are either second, third uh, generation immigrants or immigrants themselves. Now, at the same time, some Israelis choose to leave the country motivated either by push factors, you know, all immigration and emigration is based on what they call push and pull. You're pushed out of one place and you're pulled into another. 
So you have push factors that cause people to leave Israel. They are concerned about the Middle East conflict, economic considerations. Uh, they may object to the power of the religious establishment. Or there were pull factors like professional opportunities and different lifestyles overseas. So there is push-pull. And interestingly enough, when someone comes to Israel, it's called Ole. When you go to Israel, you ascend to the state of Israel. So people who come to Israel are ascenders. They're going up. And Hebrew it's called Olim. On the other hand, if you leave Israel, you're called descenders, which is the opposite of ascenders. And in Hebrew, it's used the word yordim, which means to go down. So what's happening now is there are being changes in the attitude toward Israelis who leave the country. The word yordim itself has a negative connotation. Now, what's happening is, over the years, and I saw this myself 40 years ago when I was uh, a shliach, I represented a Jewish agency in the United States for a few years, back in the late 70s, early 80s, and I met a lot of uh, Israelis who were living there who wanted very much to keep some kind of relationship with the state. So now we have the fact that the Israeli leadership today strives to maintain ties with citizens who have gone abroad, and they try to mobilize them for political and economic needs. So the, inter, interestingly enough, the platforms of many Israeli political parties increasingly include reference to Israelis who have left the country. Now, now, some of these people who left the country are immigrants, people who came to Israel, who failed to adjust to Israel, and they returned to their country of origin or moved somewhere else. Others who live outside the country are native-born Israelis who exploited the ease of obtaining a European passport to settle in one of the 30 countries on the continent that have um, uh, relaxed their entrance requirements and have become accessible for study and for work and for living. Now, many Israelis who move away have professional skills and they're welcome in the host countries, particularly the United States, Canada, and Australia. Now, the, there's advanced technologies, and there's uh, inexpensive transportation and communication that allows immigrants to maintain ongoing contact with family and friends in Israel. And the development of social organizations and networks by veteran Israelis abroad to help replenish the former Israeli ranks with new arrivals. When I came to live in Israel uh, back in uh, 1969, it was almost impossible to make a phone call to the United States. I remember you had, a, you had to stand in line, you had to get 
what was called asimonim. These were little tokens that you put into the uh, into the phone in order to make the call. And the uh, asimon was only good for a few minutes, and you had to come to the phone with a pile of them because they'd be dropping in as as you were talking. I remember it was a it was a race to finish a conversation before you finished your pile of asimonim. Today, from the desk of my library at home, I pick up the phone, I dial a number, and I talk to relatives in the United States. It's a whole different world. And so the, the ease of communication with those living out the, outside the country or those living outside the country to communicate with friends and relatives in Israel, it's it's no problem anymore. It's just, you pick up a phone and you talk from Jerusalem to New York or to San Francisco. So not only uh, have, uh, have uh, legislative and economic opportunities for emigration change, but the attitude, this is important, the attitude of the Israeli establishment and public toward leaving the country have become much more moderate over the years. They no longer hear the word yordim, descenders, as commonly as you heard when I first came to live in Israel. As I said, coming to Israel is called aliyah, going up. So the people who left the country were uh, were spoken of as descenders, as as uh, as your deem. In the past, emigration from Israel was perceived as a sign of weakness and an act of prioritizing personal and material aspirations over collective commitment. In other words, you came to Israel to be part of a collective and pushed toward the future, the Jewish future in Israel. And you were seen when you left as someone who no longer wanted to participate in the collective Jewish future. Now, the truth of the matter is, one of the things you don't hear spoken about much, and something which was, I understand changes are being made, has to do with the Israeli education system. When I came to Israel, the education system, particularly the non-religious education system, did not emphasize the importance of the existence of the state of Israel. Israel was just seen just another country where it happened to be in a certain geographical location and spoke a certain language. But the importance of Israel as the the uh, the the summit, the aspect of Jewish hopes and aspirations for thousands of years, was not taught in the in the secular school system, and as a result, the kids who were raised, although they felt loyalty to the state, did not see the state as the these, the summit or the ultimate of the Jewish experience historically. There are many people who are not religious, not observant at all, who are wonderful soldiers and wonderful businessmen who want to see the state develop, 
developed, but did not see, and, and with all power to them, but they did not see it as a step in Jewish history. They just saw it as a country they lived in, and they wanted the countries to succeed, and they wanted the country to defend itself against its enemies, which is natural, and it's, and, and it's important, but they didn't see it as another step in Jewish history. And when you don't see the country as another step in Jewish history, there's a tendency, if you will, to say, well, I can find other places where I can live more peacefully, I can make more money, and so forth. And so that was lacking in the Israeli uh, educational system, and hopefully I understand from what some of the things that I read that this is now being corrected. So, the as I said a moment ago, the 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 um, attitude of the Israeli establishment and the public toward leaving the country today is not as negative as it was a few years ago. You no longer hear the word Yordim, descenders. Today it is a greater understanding that Israelis, like people in all other Western societies, and in view of processes of globalization, should feel free to decide where they want to live. This position has gathered strength in tandem with Israel's security and economic resilience, and it's now a solid Jewish majority in Israel, cemented by mass immigration from the former Soviet Union and very high Jewish fertility rates, so people feel that the country is successful and safe. Now, I don't say that the feeling is not true, but I think it's a little bit overblown. We are still surrounded by enemies, and we have to defend ourselves, and we need people in the, to do the defending. The I think I've mentioned in the past, my grandfather was a soldier in the Russian army under the czars, and I was a soldier here, and my grandchildren, my children, and my grandchildren are soldiers or were soldiers in the Israeli army defending the Jewish state. That's something we can all be proud of. So the changes in the attitudes towards those who live in Israel are managed first and foremost, as I said, they they don't use those terms anymore like your deem, those who have descended. The Israeli leadership today strives to maintain ties with citizens who, who don't live here and to mobilize them for various political and economic needs. And, and interestingly enough, the platforms of many Israeli political parties increasingly include references to the emigres, those who have left the country. Concurrently, the public discourse does not hesitate to consider broadening the rights of, of people who have left, including participation in parliamentary elections from their places of residence abroad. Right now, people who do not live in Israel, Israeli citizens who do not live in Israel, 
have no voting rights in Israel. As opposed to, there are many countries, by the way, are similar to Israel, but as, uh, as, as an American citizen, I still retain my American citizenship. I still have a right to vote in local elections and in national elections in the United States in the, at the address where it was my last residence in the United States. Israelis who leave the country have no voting rights in Israel. If they want to vote in Israel, they have to get on a plane and come back so they can vote. And a survey conducted a few years ago by an organization called the Jewish People Policy Institute, it was found that more than half of all Israelis believe that their counterparts who live abroad make a positive contribution to the state of Israel. Now, I'm not quite sure what that means. Yet, the longer they remain abroad, the more the former Israelis distance themselves from Israel. It's reflected, among other indicators, in self-definition as Israelis, their emotional attachment to Israel, the frequency of visits to Israel, the contact with friends in Israel, and familiarity with Israel's social and political situation. Now, contrastingly, they strengthen their Jewish religious and ethnic identification, especially in symbolic behaviors like lighting Shabbat candles, celebrating Jewish holidays, keeping kosher, as well as belonging to a synagogue and local Jewish institutions. When I was a uh, representative of the Jewish agency in the United States more than 40 years ago, many of the Israelis simply no longer had uh, kept the Sabbath nor had anything that was Jewish about them. I remember that really surprised me at the time, but it turns out that was the fact at that time. Now, the number of Israelis, of Israelis abroad is estimated today about 600,000 people, which is 6% of Israel's total population. Now, that's an emigration rate similar to that of countries like Finland and Austria and Switzerland. On average, however, the Israelis who no longer live here are a selective group. They're highly educated, their young people are concentrated in white-collar occupations like high-tech science and business. So it not only diminishes the size of Israel, but undermines the country's human capital and wealth. Had they not emigrated, Israel might be an even more significant startup nation than it is. It's a challenge to Israel to induce these peoples to return by offering them stimulating economic opportunities, to find ways of strengthening their ties with Israel, and to reduce future brain drain. These challenges are difficult and hard to confront, but they must be done. And I think one of the basic uh, ways to resolve this is by increasing Jewish education in the diaspora. Israel should invest invest lots in, in uh, Jewish education in other countries because feeling a bond to Israel 
is, I think, basically based on your feeling of being Jewish. And being your feeling Jewish is based on your Jewish education. So I think it's the responsibility of the Israeli government to aid and support Jewish education in other countries. Uh, that's just some thoughts I wanted to share with the listeners. I'll be back after the break. You're listening to Israel News Talk Radio. If you love Israel News Talk Radio, then you'll love our Facebook page. We keep you up to date on what's happening in Israel, plus little surprise treasures that we don't share on the radio. Go now to follow us on Facebook. Just look for the Israel News Talk Radio Facebook page. And don't forget to subscribe and follow us, Israel News Talk Radio, on Facebook and Israel News Radio on Twitter. Hello again, you're back with Jay Shapiro. In this segment of the program, I want to touch upon a number of items that are not related, but they should give the listeners an idea of what's happening in Israel domestically and as far as foreign affairs are concerned. They're small items, but each of which I think is important enough to say something that should interest the uh, listeners. First of all, uh, a poll was recently taken that showed that Israelis across the entire political spectrum are unhappy with our government. The government, we had five elections in something like two and a half years. We finally had our last most recent, I should say, election back in November. It took a, few, a month or two to get a new government formed, and a new government was formed, headed by Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. So now a uh, poll has been taken. Uh, it's sort of uh, traditional. I think it goes back to the time of uh, President Roosevelt back in 1933 when people evaluate the first 100 days of a new government. I don't know if this happens in other Western democracies. It happens in the United States and Israel. It all started back in 1933 when President Roosevelt was first elected. He was it was a tremendously active government, and they pushed through all kinds of legislation, created all kinds of new organizations. So the first hundred days has become a new tradition, a time when you evaluate the new government. At any rate, uh, now an evaluation has been taken after a hundred days of the new government here in Israel. And the the results are not very encouraging. During this 100 days since the last election, uh, Benjamin Netanyahu has been at the head of his sixth government, and uh, the times have been less than peaceful. And according to a news poll, 69% of Israelis think the government has done a decidedly poor job. 69% essentially is two-thirds. So two-thirds of the Israeli public 
think that the government is not doing a good job. Some 50% of the Likud voters, and keep in mind, Likud is the Prime Minister's party, 52% of Likud voters gave the government a bad grade despite voting for this government and giving it 32 Knesset seats. Likud has 32 out of the 64 seats in the government. Among those receiving poor sources, scores are National Security Minister Itamar Ben-Gvir, who's from the National Religious Party, and Finance Minister Betsalel Smutrich, who's also from the same party. Itamar Ben-Gvir got 66% disapproval, and Betsalel Smutrich got 65% bad score. Also, Transportation Minister Mbiri Regev of the Likud received uh, negative feedback from 63% of the respondents to this poll. Netanyahu himself received a disapproval rating of 67% in this poll. In other words, the, the, the Likud and the rest of the government is getting about roughly a two-thirds disapproval from the public, including those people who voted for these parties. The only coalition aligned minister who received positive was Yoel Gallant, who's the defense minister. I don't think his name is known outside the country like, uh, like Netanyahu. He got a 50% approval rating. In other words, it's, it really wasn't a great approval rate, it was a little bit more than half. Now, opposition leaders also received poor performance reviews. The lowest score overall, and this is interesting, the Labor Party uh, was once the party that ran this country. From the founding of the country in 1948 in 19, until 1977, the Labour Party was the ruling party here in Israel, and now it's down to only a few seats in the Knesset, and the head of the Labour Party is a woman named Merav Michaeli, and she got a 70% negative response in this poll. Now, also, the leader of the opposition now is Yair Lapid, and 57% of respondents reported a negative view about him. Benny Gantz was the only opposition member who received a positive rating with a little, little over 50%. So the, it's interesting that both the government and the uh, opposition are looked upon by the voters, even those who voted for them, Two-thirds of essentially have a negative view of the people for whom they voted. Actually, I shouldn't say the people, I should say the parties. In Israel, you don't vote for a person, you vote for a parties, which is another problem unto itself. At any rate, the, uh, the people who did this poll uh, compiled a list of significant events that... Um, 
that influence the voters. A lot of things have happened since this government took office back in November. The, um, there was a proposal and looked at the, uh, a, uh, the judicial system be overhauled. That's brought thousands upon thousands of people into the street for and against the proposed overhaul. There was a removal of Ayyadari from his ministerial position. There were multiple fatal terror attacks. There was violence in a West Bank town called Huwara when, uh, after a terrorist uh, killed two Jewish brothers, a number of uh, Jewish settlers went into Huwara and uh, created a riot. And also, U.S. President Joe Biden's call for Netanyahu to cease the judicial legislation. These were a lot of things that happened during this period of time. And the people who took this poll did not list some other um, significant diplomatic crises that occurred. For example, the head of the uh, the, uh, the, the uh, National Religious Party, the, the finance minister, Bitalo Smotrich, spoke, spoke at an event, and behind him, while he was speaking from the lectern, there was on the wall a picture of what's called Greater Israel, which includes Israel and Jordan. And uh, that started a diplomatic crisis with Jordan, and uh, the Jordan uh, government even called in Israeli, uh, Israeli uh, um, ambassador to Jordan to, to after this, after one of the Israeli government uh, people stood in front of a, a map showing Jordan as part of Greater Israel. That created another minor crisis that was really uncalled for. So that's what's been happening across Israel since the new election. The bottom line of what I've just said is roughly two-thirds of the people, including those who voted for the government and those who voted for the opposition, are unhappy with the situation as it is today. So it's interesting how both the government and the opposition have united the people. Unfortunately, they've not united the people against them. But that, that's, uh, that's life. Anyhow, I want to go into another subject. And uh, there are a lot of tensions now. I mentioned, uh, I might have mentioned previously, I don't recall, that we have these three major um, religious holidays happening now. The Muslims have Ramadan, the Christians have Easter, the Jews have Passover. And during this time, the tensions uh, are pretty high around us, not only in Israel. And the tensions began in uh, Ramadan, actually, which began before Easter and before Passover, uh, and Iran and extremist groups have a history of using Islamic holidays, especially when they coincide with Jewish holidays like Passover, 
to create tensions. The goal is to create a narrative, and the particular one they say is that Al-Aqsa is in danger. Al-Aqsa is a mosque on the Temple Mount, and when they want to stir up the people, they say that Israel is attacking Al-Aqsa. And then they exploit these fears to create a conflict. If you go back several years to April 2021, two years ago, the, the tensions began with attacks on the Orthodox Jews in Jerusalem. There were um, clashes between Jewish and Arab youth. And in May of that year, a new crisis was developing in a neighborhood just outside the old city called Sheikh Jarrah. And also Hamas back then uh, warned Israel against developments in Jerusalem. Israeli police interviewed on the Temple Mount. There were images distributed on social media showing a tree on fire near the Al-Aqsa Mosque, which led to more claims that people must defend the mosque. And this led to further ultimate ultimatums by Hamas and terror group fired missiles in, uh, in Israel. A 10-day war followed. All this just happened two years ago. Rockets were fired from Lebanon. A drone was launched from Iran, by Iran from Iraq, and flown into Israel airspace. And uh, this, this time of the year is sort of it's a time when the the Muslim leadership, the terrorist leadership, excites the people. And this year, again, the tensions rose as Iran, Iranian rhetoric and threats grew. Iran and Syria accused Israel of attacks in Syria. Islamic Jihad accused Israel of targeting uh, at, at, uh, at Damascus. The um, Hezbollah warned Israel against any retaliation. Uh, there was an infiltration attempt into Israel in March. A bomb was exploded inside Israel by uh, near the Megiddo Junction by someone who had infiltrated into Israel. Uh, is, Syria claimed that Israel targeted a site at the Aleppo airport. Iran used drones flown by proxies to target even U.S. forces in Syria, and the U.S. retaliated. And in March, the Syrian regime in Iran claimed Israel carried out airstrikes to Damascus. They claimed there were more airstrikes in an airbase near Homs in Syria. And soon after that, an aircraft identified as a drone in foreign media was brought down by Israel after ending Israeli airspace from Syria. So there was never a moment uh, of since the beginning of uh, March, actually, it's there's it's really been a lot a lack of quiet here. The uh, last Tuesday, for example, Israeli police cleared Palestinian protesters from the Al-Aqsa Mosque on the Temple Mount, and there were calls by Hamas and other Palestinian groups to protect Al-Aqsa, and then Hamas fired rockets at Israel from Gaza. Meanwhile, Iran was sending in top diplomat to Beirut for a meeting with Saudi Arabia for normalization. At the same time, Hamas leaders were flying into Beirut, uh, Lebanon, and they met with Palestinian Islamic Jihad leaders. Rockets were fired from Lebanon at Israeli targets and so forth. Uh, Jerusalem, of course, responded. 
So there's been a round of fighting that it doesn't even get into the headlines or the first two or three pages in the newspapers. It's sort of like background noise. And these are terrorist attacks, Israel responding and so forth. And uh, there's always tension over the Al-Aqsa Mosque on the Temple Mount. And... Um, and Hamas and other terror groups threatening Israel from Gaza and Lebanon. So there's sort of a, a multi-front conflict, but rioting in several Arab communities in Israel. So these, this is now what is happening now is similar to what happened two years ago. And it's particularly worrisome when Israeli communities in Israel Arab communities in Israel start rioting. So uh, it's really unclear if Israel walked into a this conflict in sort of a trap that Iran had put in place. However, what is clear is that the tensions in 2021 and today, 2023, are very similar and that Iran seeks to benefit from them. About the... Uh, for example, Iranian media is bragging about the, their resistance targeting Israel. The, the it, It's interesting, the fact that Iranian-backed groups like Hamas are openly saying they're ready to confront the Jewish state as part of the rhetoric amplified by Iranian media. media. The, 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 uh, all this is happening, as I said a moment ago, it doesn't even get into the front pages of the Israeli newspaper. What's happening is Iran appears to be trying to increasingly threaten Israel from multiple fronts. Iran may want to increase Hamas's strength in Lebanon so it can use the terrorist group as a proxy for Lebanon rather than Hezbollah to create plausible deniability for the, for the, uh, for the uh, Iranians. So the, uh, the fact that Hamas leaders openly arrived in Beirut, Lebanon before the rocket fire indicates Iran's advanced planning. It's unclear if Iran also planned the Al-Aqsa tensions also put out messaging for rioting rioting last week in Jerusalem, but it appears that Iran did seek to heat up the region for a conflict on the eve of Passover. All of this apparently, and I'm certainly not an expert in this area, all of this is apparently not a coincidence. All of this timing is clear. Leaders of groups like Hamas, terrorist groups, don't just show up in Beirut by mistake. While their armed units are moving rockets into position, position to be fired, Israel is facing on a daily basis terror attacks on all its borders. You take a look at the map. You have, uh, uh, fortunately, right now, Jordan is not an active uh, taking an active part in attacks on Israel. But Israel is being attacked from Gaza in our southwest area and being attacked from Lebanon in, in the north. And this is going on all the time. It, it's uh, I, I don't know whether to say that it's sad, 
But the fact that this is going on all the time has become so common that it doesn't get headlines anymore. It, when when attack takes place on the Lebanese border, it appears on page two, three, or four of the daily newspapers. And it's not even mentioned at the beginning on uh, uh, of the news uh, on the radio and on television unless a lot of people get killed, unfortunately. So Israel is a country which is under constant attack all the time since our very, the very founding of the state. And each year, uh, the statistics show that the attacks get worse at the time of Easter, at the time of Passover, and the time of Ramadan, and particularly Ramadan, which is a Muslim a holy t- a month. And this year, Ramadan, Easter, and Passover all come out at the same time. So you have a multiplicity of attacks on all fronts. And this is the reality of life in Israel. And it's sad, but it's true. And uh, hopefully a day will come when we will see actual peace. But right now, it looks like it's pretty far over the horizon. I'll be back after the break. How did a nice Jewish girl from Delaware end up living in Israel? Shalom, I'm Natalie Sapinski. Join me on my show, Returning Home. Meet different people who have moved to Israel. Hear their personal stories, their highs, their lows, and everything in between. Each week, we talk to experts on immigration and the process of moving to Israel. Listen to Returning Home. Every Sunday on Israel News Talk Radio. You're back with Jay Shapiro. The Knesset is on vacation, starting for beginning uh, before Passover, and I think for another week or two. So things are quiet. But I'd like to say a few words about something that's been uh, causing a lot of uh, controversy here in Israel, and I'd like the listeners to have an understanding of it. It's got to do with judicial reform. The uh, I'm sure I've spoken about this before. There's something against the headlines just about every day in the week. And also there have been all kinds of demonstrations for and against here in Israel. As a matter of fact, uh, I live in the heart of Jerusalem, and the police have set up barriers, even though there are no demonstrations yet. They're getting the barriers set just in case sudden demonstrations do occur. So I want to say so what the judicial reform is trying to do, as I understand it, is take away the immense power that the judges have uh, over the other branches of government. Uh, as I've said in the past, the United States has a judicial, a legislative, administrative, and they sort of balance each other out. And in Israel, we have a legislative uh, in which uh, uh, it's essentially the Knesset and the administrative, which is really part of the Knesset. So the administrative is part of the legislative, and then you have the judicial, which has an amount of power, which is really, in a sense, uh, more than it should have compared to the other branches of government. 
And that's what's been the big controversy controversy here in Israel. So I'd like to say that um, Israel's government's decision to delay enacting this badly needed reasonable and I think democratic judicial reforms brings to mind the old adage that justice delayed is justice, justice denied. Delay, delaying the, judge, the judicial reform can enable the court to continue to ignore laws passed by Israel's elected government to decide cases based on a judge's subjective view, which is generally left-wing and of what's reasonable and failed to require or examine evidence when acting as the High Court of Justice. They decide cases where no party has standing and perpetuate its extraordinary power by controlling the sufficient seats on the Judicial Selection Committee to enable the justices to essentially select their own successors. That's what the big problem is. Now, a delay can enable the unelected, self-appointed Israeli Supreme Court to maintain its power over Israel's dem democratically elected branches of government. Back in, on March 19th, during the height of the recent debate over judicial reform, the Supreme Court demonstrated its lawlessness and its dictator dictator dictatorial control over the elected branch of government by ruling that the Israeli National Security Minister, Itamar Ben-Gvir, cannot issue direct or indirect operational orders to Israeli police forces. Now, delay can also enable the court to decide even more cases that violate, I believe, Israel's democratically elected laws. It can interfere with Israeli security and military actions and sovereignty, and in a sense, it could jeopardize Israeli lives. A day, a delay will move, will moreover, moreover, reward the left-wing opposition, which lost the November 2022 election. To um, right now, they're refusing offers to discuss compromise. And essentially what they're doing is endangering the country by violently clashing with police and blocking the ports like Haifa and, and uh, Ashdod. And they're blocking the airport and the roads while uh, Palestinian Arabs perpetuate multiple life-threatening terror attacks just about every day. Now, a delay in uh, passing these laws that will balance out the matter in which the Supreme Court justices are chosen, will, will also encourage the left to use the mob tactics, again, to overturn the election results. The, um, it's interesting, by the way, the United States State Department is funding an organization called the Movement for Quality Government. It's known by its initials, MQG, it organized the anti-government demonstrations. The delay can encourage even more illegal American other foreign government interference in Israel's internal affairs. That, that, that is really what's happening.
What's happening right now is the unelected attorney general and legal advisors also have dictatorial power over top elected Israeli officials. In normal democratic countries, the attorney general and his office work for, for elected officials, not against them. And the Israeli attorney general, for example, banned Prime Minister Netanyahu from speaking about judicial reform and from even engaging in compromise talks. That's the power that the so-called advisors have. You have to remember that the Supreme Court decided to block the Israeli army from raising buildings used by terrorists to attack Israelis passing on the nearby road, despite the army's plan to pay compensation to the absentee building owners. This resulted in Arab terrorists using the buildings to kill Israelis. So a delay can also continue to, to the, the, the court's penchant for interfering in other security measures that courts in other dem democratic countries do not involve themselves in. For example, our Supreme Court here in Israel interfered with the root of Israel's security barrier, and, and they interfered with methods of interrogating terrorists and demolitions of terrorist homes. In other words, <clears throat> what I'm trying to say is, obviously, you need a court, you need a judicial system, but what's happened in Israel is it's gotten a power way out of proportion. The, uh, the delay also could also give further aid and comfort to anti-Israel boycotters. The delay could let the court again permit the entry into Israel of anti-Israeli BDS activists in violation of Israel's anti-boycott law. That's what the court did back in 2017 when it allowed into Israel the entry of a the head of a chapter of a BDS organization called Students for Justice in Palestine. And the delay could let the court again overturn the Israeli education minister's decision to block a professor who supports BDS from receiving the Israeli prize, the state's highest cultural honor. What I'm trying to make, I hope I'm not, not sounding repetitive, the court has taken upon itself power out of proportion and at the same time the court is very left wing and the court also essentially reappoints or appoints new members of the court based upon the ones who are sitting there already so a delay for example can continue to prevent Jewish owners from recovering their property as for instance it occurred when the Israeli Supreme Court froze the lower court's ev eviction orders against illegal Arab squatters in, a, uh, in an area of Jerusalem called Shivanat Tzadik that his property was owned by Jewish charities and uh, Arabs were uh, squatting there so what happened is the court essentially has a, a power, much greater power than courts have in other democratic countries. So I, I personally feel that the this a lot of people like me feel that the this, the uh, outsized power of the courts 
has to be reduced by the judicial reforms that the government wants to do. So uh, I am favor personally in favor. I don't know. I don't know all the details of the um, of the law. Some of them are kind of complicated, but the very fact that the the one of the portions of the uh, the law that they're trying to pass now takes away power from the Supreme Court to essentially appoint new members of the Supreme Court out of proportion uh, of the the of the power that other branches of the government have to help appoint Supreme Court members. Again, as I've said before, I just want to remind the listeners, in America, a member of the Supreme Court is appointed by the president and has to be approved by the Senate. So they have the other two parts of the government, the legislative and the administrative, essentially uh, helping to decide who will be in the judicial branch. In Israel, what you have essentially is a committee with which the overwhelming majority already are judges in the judicial branch, and they essentially have the power to choose who, who else is going to be in the judicial branch. And this is an out-of-proportion strength, and that is what the new law is trying to reduce. The details are really not, a, not as important. The, the thrust of the new law is to reduce the outsized power that the court has to choose its own followers, who else is going to be on the court. And that's the issue that's tearing the country apart. And I quite honestly think that a lot of people don't understand the implications of uh, passing or not passing this new law. And uh, a lot of uh, people go into this feature, a lot of demonstrations, a lot of the demonstrations are supported by foreign um, NGOs who uh, provide um, uh, money for bringing people to the demonstrations, signs for the demonstrations, etc. So it's a touchy business, and what one which now is in essentially in recess, but it's going to become an issue again immediately after the holidays, and we'll, we'll have to keep an eye on it. The other subject that I want to say, since we're talking about uh, important issues, the um, we'll talk about the tensions between Washington and Israel. The uh, it's interesting. The president of the United States publicly chastised the prime minister of Israel. The uh, and that that seems like a rather dire situation. Now, there's no doubt that Israel and the United States have always had a big brother-younger brother relationship. And like all siblings, they fight, they quibble, and they say awful things to each other. But they will always be there for each other. In fact, the reason they feel comfortable saying those awful things is because they know they will always be there for the other. Israel and the United States are very, very close allies. And there are tensions. And they are high and they're dramatic, but they will pass. Question is, how long will it take until they pass? The uh, what's happening now, the most visible public way for Biden to essentially uh, show he's not happy with um, the Israeli government is he's holding back on a traditional invite to the uh, 
uh, Israeli prime minister come to the White House. For decades, every incoming Israeli prime minister would visit the White House. The tradition grew to resemble a rite of passage. Soon after assuming the man mantle of leader leadership in Jerusalem, the prime minister makes the pilgrimage to Washington to meet with the city U.S. president. Now, obviously, the trip has many purposes. On the personal side, for some it's a first meeting and a get-to-know-you chat. Israel and the U.S. are close allies and work so closely together on so many issues, it was important for the leaders to really get to know each other. Now, on the public side, the president and prime minister would reiterate a commitment for mutual support. On the security side, they would agree that Israel's nuclear technology and weapons were properly secured and would be utilized responsibly. But most importantly, they would agree that the U.S. is Israel's back and that the U.S. would actively engage and defend Israel in any multi-front war against her attackers. For certain, other items would be discussed by the various presidents and prime ministers, issues that, based on their personalities, we can only speculate about. <clears throat> Historically, by the way, the meetings were always behind closed doors. Afterwards, there's always a press conference. It was the opportunity for the, the world leaders to charm the media, smiles and handshakes and pats on the back. They looked genuine and usually were. But the audience they were playing for was not their respective local audiences. It was essential for the security of Israel, for the security of this region, and in the best interest of the United States, for the world to see that the relationship with Israel and the United States, a cultural relationship, the sort of we are on the same page relationship between these two democratic nations continues even though the leadership has changed. Now, what's happened is now, by not inviting the prime minister, the United States has broken the tradition, like they're trying to teach Jerusalem a lesson. They're minimizing the brush-off by using historical argument. They claim that Biden has known Netanyahu for 40 years. They already have a strong and very friendly relationship. But the world needs to see it in action. Right now, what the world has heard Biden say belies that explanation. It's obvious that Washington is not pleased with the new government, especially Netanyahu's push for judicial reform. And despite decades of warm friendship between the leaders, Netanyahu does not care that Biden is displeased. Netanyahu is also certainly determined he can weather the storm. He has calculated, I think, that Biden cannot and will not be reelected. So no matter which victor emerges in the 2024 U.S. election, whether it's a Democrat or Republican, it will not be Biden. And I think that is what Netanyahu is thinking. So I think that that realization gives Netanyahu peace of mind. He'll be friendly to the sitting U.S. president. But Netanyahu, I believe, is is behaving as if Biden is Biden is a lame duck. That's my opinion. I, I'm not a big political scientist, but the impression I have that that is how Netanyahu is behaving, as if 
Biden is not going to be the president after 2024. So apparently not being invited to, to Washington doesn't trouble Bibi. If it did, Jerusalem would be lobbying hard for the meeting. And as I understand it, Israel is not lobbying at all for Biden to meet with Netanyahu. Now, I think one of the problems is, or one of the issues is, that the White House does not understand that Israel today is a very divided country. It's split nearly perfectly in half. The, the division is not just about judicial reform. It's about almost everything you can think of. And certainly split, I believe, about Netanyahu. There are some people who are supportive of Netanyahu and some people who really hate Netanyahu. I remember I lived not far away from the uh, prime minister's residence when Netanyahu uh, uh, for the last several years, there, there have been demonstrations against Bibi uh, almost every Saturday night. There are people sitting here almost every night demonstrating against Netanyahu. And this is where Israel really has the upper hand. The United States, I think, it's also split right down the middle. <clears throat> and I don't think it's just about the president, the former president, the Trump and his indictment. You see it in the television ratings war, where it's Fox versus the others. You see it. You see. You see where Congress is split. And this is very obvious. And the House of Representatives for the Republicans, the Senate for the Democrats. The U.S. is wrenched right down the middle. Israel understands the United States. The Prime Minister's office is. I believe our prime minister always feels secure. They see these divisions in the United States also. And most importantly, they know that their real friendships rest in Congress, not in the White House. And they know that regardless of what happens regarding judicial reform, the friendship, the family ties between the U.S. and Israel will remain intact. So, despite the division in Israel and division in the United States, the one issue unifying Washington is the bipartisan, almost unanimous support of Israel. And in the, in the final analysis, that's all that matters. That's how I see our relationship with the United States. It's, this is just the observation of a non-politician a non-expert in political scientist, but someone who reads the news and has been reading the news for quite a few years, I think that our relationship with the United States, though it has bumps along the way, is a solid one. We are one of the few democracies, particularly in the Middle East, and one that is deserving of United States support, and indeed supports the United States here in the Middle East. These are some thoughts that I just saw in the past long. Uh, there are thoughts of a, of a non-politician, of a non-professional political scientist, but as someone who reads the news, listens to the radio, watches television, and sees pretty much what's going on. It's a personal opinion, but it's mine. Anyway, thanks for listening. Until next time, take care of yourselves. Jay Shapiro signing off.
Israel News Talk Radio, straight talk from Israel. If you love Israel News Talk Radio, then you'll love our Facebook page. We keep you up to date on what's happening in Israel, plus little surprise treasures that we don't share on the radio. Go now to follow us on Facebook. Just look for the Israel News Talk Radio Facebook page. And don't forget to subscribe and follow us by clicking on the like button. We post great stuff there that you'll want to share. Israel News Talk Radio on Facebook and Israel News Radio on Twitter. If you're hearing this message, everyone else can too. Advertise with Israel News Talk Radio and get your message out to people. We'll build a personalized package for you. Contact advertising at IsraelNewsTalkRadio.com. Straight talk from Israel. You're listening to Israel News Talk Radio. Hey, this is Jake in Anchorage, Alaska, and I love listening to all the super interesting interviews and up-to-date information on what's happening in Israel. Hello, this is Anna King, originally from London, now living in Israel. And what can I say? Israel News Talk Radio is my cup of tea. My name is Bhaskar. I'm from India, and I love listening because you get to know the truth and wonderful voices from this lovely country. Mom! Okay, wait a minute. Hi, this is Chava Dax, and I'm calling from the rolling hills of Malaya Dumim, just north of Jerusalem. I always listen to Israel News Talk Radio to get all the latest news and commentary and to keep me up to date every day. This is Sarah Dax from Malaya Dumim, and I'm 12. I wish Israel News Talk Radio was boring so my mom wouldn't listen to it all the time. Mom! You're listening to Israel News Talk Radio. News, opinion, and more. You're listening to Israel News Talk Radio. 